All right, first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, we're going to kind of jump right in, then I'll give you a little bit of background. I'm going to read the first six verses, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about them. So chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walk according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul begins this section with the word now. Now, there in verse 1, that word indicates he's turning the page, if you will. He's starting a new section. Some people even said he's starting a whole new letter, that this wasn't actually part of the letter. I don't believe that. I think he's just turning the page. He's starting a new chapter. All of our chapters in the Bible were put in much afterwards. This was a letter written by the Apostle Paul in order. He didn't put chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. So when he says now, he's starting a new section, if you, if you will. In the first seven chapters, Paul focused on his restored relationship with the Corinthian church, if you remember from our previous studies. In chapters 8 and 9, Paul focused on giving. He told and he encouraged the church to give money financially to the saints back in Jerusalem. Hey, they're going through a hard time. Why don't you help them out? Now, he's going to begin an entirely new section. These last three chapters... Well, they're going to be a little different. You see, in the first couple of, or the first nine chapters, Paul's overall tone, it was, it was gentle and it was overall gracious. But in these last three chapters, Paul langui- Paul's language is going to become uh, much stronger. It's going to become much more authoritative and it's also going to be much more confrontational. So he's kind of going, I'm wrapping this letter up, but I'm going to tell you how it is along the way. That's, that's what we're, we're getting into. And to understand why this this shift in things, we need to remember, he's going to go back and revisit this, we need to remember what's going on between the Apostle Paul and the church there in Corinth. So I want to do a a relatively quick review. The Apostle Paul planted the church in Corinth. He spent about 18 months there. The Lord called him away from there to go to other places. As he departed, he took the gospel with him to go to other places. Paul began to hear word. He began began to get letters and hear what was going on in Corinth. And there was a problem, there were some problems going on in Corinth he decides that he's going to write a letter to correct them. He writes a letter to the church in Corinth to address some of those problems. We don't have a copy of that first letter. It's not, we don't have it. It's not, it's not been preserved. It's not there. Uh, not long after that first letter is sent, bigger problems arise within the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth is turning to become more of a carnal church. Sexual immorality is running rampant in the church. The people in the church were suing one another. There's division happening in the church. They're identifying with men rather than Christ. Some people were following Apollos. Some were following Paul. Some were following Peter. And Paul is saying, no, it should be, you should be following Christ. So we have this division. And to correct these problems, Paul writes what we have as the letter of 1 Corinthians. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. We've studied through it. If you missed it, you can catch up and get it online. But not long after he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, what happened? 
some false prophets began to come into the church. They began to try to divide the people from Paul and draw people unto themselves. They began to, they, they were men pleasers. They wanted to tell the people what they wanted to hear. They wanted, to, they wanted people to follow them. It wasn't about following Christ. It was about following me and my way. Follow my ministry, my church, my way of doing things. And they were kind of putting the Lord on the back seat. So they sowed division in the church and they turned people away with many, many false uh, teachings and accusations. To address this problem, Paul wrote a third letter to the church. The only thing we know of this letter, it's called the severe letter. So it must have been pretty severe in his rebuke of them. As a result of them receiving this third letter, the Corinthian church came to a place of repentance. They realized our ways are wrong. Paul is not who these guys say he is. We need to repent and we need to reconcile with Paul. As a result of that news reaching Paul, he writes the letter of 2 Corinthians. Now in this letter of 2 Corinthians, we come to chapter 10. Paul's turning the focus back towards these false teachers and these false accusations. So that's kind of... You know, in the last two chapters, eight and nine, he was talking about giving. Now he's turning his focus back to what was taking place with them. So, where did I lose them off my notes here? Here we go. Paul starts here. He says, I am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent, am bold towards you. Paul's, in a sense, he's telling them, listen, guys, I'm going to be a little bit rough with what I'm about to say. I'm going to be a little bit bold. I'm going to be a little bit direct on how I, I do things. But I want you to understand it's by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I'm going to confront some of the issues, but I want to be meek. I want to be gentle when I'm doing it. These false teachers had kind of taken Paul's personality and they had, they had accused him of being two-faced. They had said, hey, when Paul's with us, he's gentle and he's meek. But yet he writes these letters to us, and he's so bold and so mean and so judgmental. He's not the same person. He's a different person hiding behind the pen than when he's with us in person. They had accused him of this very thing. But isn't it true that it's always easier to be bold in a letter than in person? It's always easier to be bold hiding behind a keyboard and a post on Facebook than it is talking to somebody personally. I want to clear that up because Paul's not trying to hide behind a pen. He's not trying to hide behind a keyboard. Obviously, he didn't have a keyboard, but he's not trying to hide behind something. But what he is clearing up or what he's going to come to tell us in this letter is, I'm going to be bold now so that when I'm there with you, I can be meek and gentle. But if I have to, get, if I have to confront something, I will do it boldly. Rest assured that that's my desire is I want you to handle the problems before I get there so that when I get there, we can enjoy the fellowship together. And if there's still a problem with certain individuals, I'll take care of it when I get there. That's the Apostle Paul. That's what he's saying. Now, it seems to us, and oftentimes we get this confused, boldness and meekness seem to be opposite one another, don't they? they seem, how could you possibly be bold and meek? But I believe they can go together. They can be displayed at the same time in the same person think of christ in one breath he's confronting the pharisees extremely bold in the other breath he's healing and meeting the needs of the people and very very meek you know in one breath he has no problem saying what the truth is in love but at the other breath he's meeting the needs and coming alongside of the people please don't make the mistake of thinking that meekness is weakness meekness is not weakness what does the word meekness mean 
Remember this, or jot it down, it's strength and power under control. It's strength and power under control. It's, it's that I have the ability to do what I need to do, but I don't need to display it to you. I have nothing to prove to you. There's nothing I need to show. I, I don't need to prove to you who I am or what abilities I have. I, just, I, I can be meek and I can be humble, and if necessary, I'll, I, I, I can be bold if necessary. I can confront if I need to. That's what the Apostle Paul's saying here. You see, Paul's enemies these false teachers, they put a negative spin on his compassion towards people. They've tried to make him look two-faced. They've scornfully uh, condemned it as a, as a weakness. He's hiding behind a pen. He's, he's, hiding, he's good in his letters, but personally, he's not very much to look at. They accuse him of being meek when face-to-face, but bold as he writes to them. And look at verse 2 as Paul continues this thought. He says, but I beg you that when I am present... I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Paul says, when I get there, I'll be bold with some people, if that's necessary. But I'm not going to be bold with everyone. You see, my letter is preceding me. I'm hoping the situation will be taken care of. I want to enjoy the fellowship with you. He didn't want to be bold and confrontational unless he needed to. Some people like to be bold and confrontational all the time, don't they? That's the only half of this they have. They need the meekness part. Other people are meek all the time. They need the bold and confrontational part, but it can work together. So, have you ever met the person that everything is, is, everything is a confrontation? They can't even go through the checkout line at Martin's without having an argument. You know, everything has to be a confrontation. Everything has to be drama, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's churches. It follows them everywhere, and they never realize that I'm the problem. Not me, them. They're, the, they're their own problem that they take with them. It's always confrontational with them. Paul's saying, listen, if I have to be confrontational, I will be. But I'd rather not be. I'd rather I write to you, you address the problems in your life, and then we come and enjoy the sweet fellowship together when I'm there. See, Paul's critics have been attacking him in the flesh. But Paul will not respond to these accusations in the flesh. Very, very important section coming up. If you don't have it highlighted or underlined, it, you're going to want to pay specific attention. Look at verse 3. Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Great little section of scripture there. Paul says, yep, we're human. We walk in the flesh, just like we do. I'm a human, I got a body, I got flesh. I got, I got skin wrapped around my bones, that's my flesh. It's there. But he makes it an important distinction. He says, we don't war according to the flesh. We don't fight according to the flesh. Paul has been attacked in the flesh, but he will not respond in the flesh. You know, a spiritual war can never be won with fleshly weapons. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's a principle that Christians need to learn and to understand. Far too often, Christians in our lives, we're fighting spiritual battles and we're trying to do it in the flesh. And we're not even utilizing the spiritual weapons that are available for us to overcome the things. We have the wrong enemy in mind many times. In other words, we don't fight our enemies in the flesh. You shouldn't even be fighting your own flesh in the flesh. We have spiritual things that are available to us that we'll talk about shortly. Paul, he's in the midst of a battle. 
He's in the midst of a struggle. He's in the midst of a confrontation with a group of false teachers. Have you ever been in one? You ever had a battle? You ever, you ever had a confrontation? You ever had a struggle? Of course you had. We, we don't have to live very long. Even in, in school, you had problems with other kids. There's always a battle. There's always a conflict. There's always something going on in life. We're human beings walking in the flesh. Paul's got this battle. He's warring against these false teachers. They're accusing of being two different people, one in his letters and somebody else. But Paul recognized his battle as a spiritual battle, not as a fleshly battle. Do you recognize the battles in your life as spiritual or do you just see them as fleshly? Do you recognize the enemy that you're fighting? Or is the enemy that you're fighting focused on your husband, your wife, your boss, your teacher, your friend, your mom, your dad, your kids? Those aren't enemies. Those are tools in the hands of the enemy. But the battle that lies before us, what Paul's telling us, is a spiritual battle. It's something that's taking place different than a fleshly battle. When two guys get into a fist fight, it's a fleshly battle. It's who can hit the hardest, who can get not get knocked out. That's a fleshly fight. Paul says, as Christians, we're in battles too, but it's not a fleshly battle. And oftentimes we want to escalate to fleshly striking, fleshly arguing, fleshly yelling, fleshly response to a spiritual battle, and it will have no effect. In fact, it just makes it worse. In Paul's life, it was the church he planted. He planted the church in Corinth. He led the people to Christ. They're, they're, he got saved, they got saved because of Paul bringing the gospel to them. And now they've turned on him. These false teachers have crept in. They've, they're turning the people on him. In your life, who is it? Is it your husband, your wife, your boss, your children, your parents, your neighbor, your coworker? Are you battling in the flesh? Are you battling in the spirit? Are you using fleshly tools and weapons? Or are you using spiritual tools and weapons? You see, if you fail to recognize the battles in this life are spiritual, you're destined for defeat and struggle for the rest of your life, where you don't have to. As a Christian, Paul says we have weapons of warfare that are available to us. And I want you to notice, look what he tells us about them. Look what he says about our weapons of spiritual warfare. He says, they are not carnal, but mighty in God. They're not carnal. They're mighty in God. They're not material. They're not, they're, not what, they're not the things that the world has to offer. But you also won't get the response from the things the world has to offer. They're mighty in God. They're mighty in God. They're powerful. Do you know what the word for mighty means? I like this. It means this. It means they are capable. Capable. They're, being, they're, they're able. They're capable. They're of capacity. They're all that you need. They're capable of accomplishing defeat in the battle before you. He's not giving us a subpar weapon that says, well, good luck. He's giving you a weapon. He's giving you spiritual. He's saying it's a spiritual battle. The weapons you have are capable of overcoming the battle that you're facing. We need to know that, don't we? Maybe you've heard me tell the story before. Prior to becoming a pastor, I was a police officer. Part of my job as a police officer, I was on the SWAT team. After being a number of years in the SWAT team, one day the SWAT leader, team leader gave us a shield. We used to go into the door. You'd have a shield in front of you in case anybody would shoot at you. And I always wondered, would it really stop bullets? Was it capable of stopping bullets? Well, then one day they, those things expire. He gave it to us. He said, take it out on the range and shoot it up. Go ahead, put it down range and shoot all, all your guns. Go ahead, shoot at it. So we shot at it. When we got done, we walked down there and we took it up. And it was like, it was, it was limp. It was flopping. But you know what? It stopped every bullet we shot at it. It was proven capable. 
The next time I had to carry that through the front door, guess what I was? My, my, my shield's capable. How do I know? It's been tested. And Paul's telling us that the weapons here that we have, they're capable. The weapons to available, us, available to us are mighty. They're not carnal. They can't be found in the flesh or in the minds. You see, carnal weapons that are used today, your self-help books, sometimes medication can be a carnal weapon. Sometimes it can be uh, name-calling, fist-fighting, man-made programs to follow. They're not necessarily capable of accomplishing victory. Oh, they might, but they're not capable. They may mask the symptom. They may take away the temporary issue. But are they capable of giving you the victory? You see, that's what Paul's saying the difference is. These weapons, these spiritual weapons, they're capable. They're able to give you the victory. These weapons of warfare that Paul is talking about are not carnal. They are mighty in God. And look what he tells us they're capable of. There at the end of verse 4, they're capable of pulling down strongholds. They're capable of casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. They're capable of bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. They're capable of and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Did you catch that? This is what they're capable of. Let me read it to you again. Pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments, bringing every thought into captivity, being ready to punish all disobedience. Those are, th- those are problems in a life, aren't they? Strongholds. Do you know that sin in your life will produce strongholds? What's a stronghold? It's something that's got a hold of you. It's something that you can't get away from. It's produced by sin. It begins, it begins by making a wrong choice, by making a bad choice. Then it becomes an infatuation. Then it turns into a habit. Before you know it, you're stuck with an addiction. Now what do I do? As it slowly digs an inescapable rut in your life. You're stuck and you can't get out. I want to quit, but I can't quit. I keep falling over and over and over again. At first, the sin came in by invitation. Well, try it. It might might be fun. Bible says sin's fun for a season, but it leads to what? Death. Death. It leads to death. We enter, we, we invite it into our life. But then you know what happens? It outlives its welcome. I don't want it here anymore, but now you can't get rid of it. It becomes extremely difficult to evict. It turns into a stronghold. Sometimes it's a sin. Sometimes it's a, it's a thought. Sometimes it's a lie. Whatever it is, it's a stronghold. Some of the strongholds in the lives of believers today, and I'm not going to list all of them because I couldn't possibly. just want to kind of go through a couple of them that I see pretty regularly. Drug and alcohol addiction. Stronghold in somebody's life, wouldn't you agree? Pornography, sexual addiction, stronghold in somebody's life, wouldn't you agree? Gambling addictions, eating disorders, anxiety is a stronghold in people's lives. Fear can be a stronghold. Worry can be a stronghold. Any of these things that occupy your mind and move you to a place where you're not able to perform like you would without it there, it's got a hold of you. It's a stronghold. It's got something on you. You can't tear down a stronghold with self-discipline. You can't tear down a stronghold with a self-help book or by, get, by buying a new book and reading this guy's five-step program on overcoming it. It doesn't work that way. You can't go to a few counseling sessions and say, all right, I'm fine now. I'm, I'm, I went to counseling. No, it doesn't work that way. You can't just get a prescription. Now I don't, it's, it's taking care of the symptoms, so now I'm good. The stronghold, no, it's still got you because the minute you come off that prescription, guess what? It's still there. You see, when sin burrows itself deep into our psyche, It only gets uprooted from the inside out. 
It's a stronghold that needs to be pulled down. It's a spiritual power that's necessary to bust up a sinful stronghold. It's the only way that it happens. It's why we're so passionate about broken chains. It's why we want to see guys, guys, starting with guys and hopefully some of the women that are addicted to drugs and alcohol to be able to set, be set free through the power of God's word. Because we know that it's a spiritual side that's going to set, set them apart from the stronghold. Yes, there's some, that's why, have you ever noticed why, the, why so many programs have such a high recidivism rate? Because they just get them through the program temporarily and then the minute they go back out on their own, they're, they're back. In our radio station, how many people have we seen get saved in prison? Come to our church and we see them for a week or two weeks or three weeks. I get letters. Hey, when I get out, I'm coming to your church. Or I never see them at all. They never make it. They get out on Monday. They don't make it till Sunday because the stronghold is still in their life. They were just temporarily taken out, but it was never torn down. And Paul says there's spiritual weapons available that will tear down strongholds in your life. I'm sure there's some of us here this morning that have strongholds in our life that need to be torn down. And I want to I give you hope and faith that it can happen. Paul tells us that these spiritual weapons that can be used to pull, they can be used to pull down strongholds. But notice what he also says. They're also effective to cast down arguments and to cast down every high thing that exhausts itself against God. The word for argument here, what's an argument? See, we, don't, we read that kind of stuff in our culture. What does that mean? What's an argument? Here's what it means. It's deceptive and false reasoning based on fake arguments with the intention to deceive or mislead. You go, I still don't got it, Rob. Give it to me simple. I need to understand. An argument is a lie that you're believing in your head. That's what it is. The spiritual weapons that are available to us can cast down arguments, these lies that we tend to believe in our heads. Anybody have some lies they believe in your head once in a while? It just runs around. There it is. Same thing, whatever it is. Creates anxiety, creates fear. As it plays over and over and over again in your head. Is there a fear that will not go away? That's where strongholds begin to take root. Is there something that creates anxiety in you? It just, I, I can't do it. I, 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 there, I can't do it. I can't go away. Paul says there's spiritual weapons that can tear down these strongholds they're spiritual weapons that can cast down these arguments or these lies you don't have to live the rest of your life believing a lie you can and you can be saved and go right ahead what kind of life would that be it's a miserable existence do you realize that you can have a stronghold an argument or a lie in your life and it literally holds you captive it won't let, it's like being in prison without the bars in front of you. It's like you're, you're chained to it. You can't get away from it. Whatever it is, it, and, and I couldn't possibly list them. I, I'll, I'll go for, through a few. If you struggle with anxiety or fear, do you know you're probably believing a lie? There's something in your head that's playing over and over again that, that is not true, but you don't know what to do with it. You have to replace it with what is true. You replace it with the truth of God's word. Is there an addiction in your life? You see, if you have an addiction in your life, you're only in one of two places. Either you really don't want to quit, and that's often the case in many people, or you can't quit, or, or, you, or you feel like you can't quit. And if you believe you can't quit, oh, it's just too hard. I can't do it. I've tried. It doesn't work. I'm on the wagon again. Not going to happen. Listen, you're over, trying to overcome in the flesh. You can't overcome it in the flesh. Paul's telling us it's spiritual. It's a stronghold that needs to come down through spiritual battles, through spiritual uh, weapons of warfare. You need to cast down the arguments. The argument that says, I can't quit. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, including quit my addiction. So you have to take that I can't and turn it into I can. 
And I'm not into the power of positive confession and the TV preachers that way. But there is a, a valid, valid principle that when you take the lies running around in your head and you replace them with the truth of God's word, it'll change your life. Now, you might have to do that every day. You might have to do it every moment. You might have to do it every hour. You might do it every minute, 60 times in a minute. But you don't quit doing it. You keep doing it. You, you, you don't quit. You keep going. I'm going to take that lie. Yes. Sometimes it's a, oh, my husband doesn't love me. Yeah, I know he loves me because he's here with me. He's taking care of me. You, you, there's all these lies that Satan wants to whisper into your mind that you've got to realize they are lies. They are not true. And you need to replace them with what is true. It's an important pr principle for us to learn. Do you struggle with discontentment? Are you believing a lie and thinking that if I just had, if I just had a husband, if I just had a wife, if I just had children, if I had a grandchild, if I had, if I had a little more money, if I had a better job, if I had a better house, if I lived in a better place, if I just had one more thing, then I would be content. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Because the person who needs one more thing to be content will need one more thing always to be content. But once you get the one more thing, you're going to want one more thing. That's the way that it works. You can find contentment. You can find that by replacing the lie with the truth. It's, 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 a, it's a rather simple process. Do you believe the wrong, or do you have the wrong thoughts or ideas about people? Have you ever noticed some people always believe the worst? Always believe the worst, what they hear. That's what's going on in Corinth. The people in Corinth, have, the, the false teachers have come in, they've talked to Paul, they've talked about Paul saying, oh, he's just in it for the money, he doesn't really care. And everybody's going, uh-huh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Nobody, and Paul, so what he's telling them is you've got to stop and say, wait a minute, I need to cast down that argument as false. It's a lie. I need to replace it with the truth. So often people, it's easy to believe the worst of somebody. It always starts as, have you heard? Or in the, Christian, in the church it starts as, I have a prayer request. Did you hear what happened to so-and-so? It's easy to believe the worst. Watch the news. What do, they, what do they publicize? The worst or the best? It's the worst of society. They don't put the best out there. They put the worst out there. Why? Because we all want to see it. We all want to watch it. What's going on? The key to this is recognizing the battles in your life as spiritual. You have to recognize them as spiritual. And then once you recognize them as spiritual, you deploy spiritual weapons that you have available to you. And with those weapons, you can cast down arguments, you can pull down strongholds, you can bring every thought into captivity. What a novel idea. Every thought into captivity. <coughs> the Christians in Corinth had doubted and denied Paul's apostolic credentials. That's what the false teachers were telling them. He's not really an apostle. He just wants your money. He just, he's just, he doesn't really care about you. They should have done what? They should have brought those thoughts into captivity and said, wait a minute, are these true? No, they're not true. And they should have thrown them away. But they didn't. They listened to them. Now notice what Paul says there. How many thoughts did Paul say that we need to take into captivity? He said, every thought. And in case you're wondering if there's a different word for every in the Greek, no, it means all, every, all of them. Take every one of them, thought, every thought into captivity. When you were battling in the spirit, when you realize this is a spiritual battle, you have the ability to bring every thought into captivity. You see, people don't believe that. No, I can't control my mind. Yes, you can. It's your mind. You control where you put your mind. You can set your mind anywhere you want. Have you ever just let your mind go? Whoa, that's scary, isn't it? What would happen if you just let your mind go wherever it wants to go? Man, 
What if we all knew where it went? Ooh, that's even worse. You see, we don't let our minds go there. As Christians, we have to control our minds. We take a thought captive. You might, it, it, sin begins with a thought. You might have a thought and go, wait a minute, I need to stop that. I'm taking that thought captive, I'm rejecting it. Well, God doesn't love me. Wait a minute, take a thought. The scriptures tell me that for God so loved the world. All right, that's me, so that thought's out. I'm replacing that with the truth. And whatever the thought is, we cannot let our minds run wild. You absolutely, positively need to control your minds. This means thoughts of anger, lust, bitterness, fear, greed, envy. Every thought must be taken into captivity. You know what that word captivity means? I like this. I like when Paul uses military terms. It's a prisoner of war. That's what it means. Every thought needs to be taken as a prisoner of war. What do you do with the prisoner of war? You confine them. Do you listen to them? Do you let them, in, do you let them tell you, change your battle plan? Do you, how, much, how much emphasis do you, how much, how much credence are you going to give to what a prisoner of war says? Nothing. They're your enemy. That's the way we need to see our thoughts. And we take every thought as a prisoner of war. And then we go, all right, is this from the Lord? Or is this, is this, do I need to discard this thought? Is this drawing me closer to God or is it pushing me farther away? <clears throat> oh, it's not from the Lord, it's from an enemy. Confined, gone, locked up in prison. Don't ever go back and visit it again. Push it away. We have to take those thoughts captive. We don't just let them run through our mind. We treat them like prisoners of war. But what are the spiritual weapons? You've heard me talk about spiritual weapons that we have to fight with. At the end of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul lists out them for us. And I wish we could spend the next hour going through them, but we can't. But in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about the weapons of our warfare. He tells us the, we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. Great Bible study. Do it on your own. You can do it with me online. I've gone through it. But for this morning, I want to talk about just two of them. I want to tell you about two weapons of spiritual warfare that you have available to you that I will tell you, even in my own life, in all Christians' life, it is farly underutilized. Two, the word of God and the power of prayer. The word of God and the power of prayer. And, I didn't, and, and I'll add three out, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit as well, as well, too, in you. You have these things in your life that we don't use enough. In order to destroy a stronghold, in order to cast down an argument, we must take every thought captive, make every impulse, every emotion, every wandering mind harmonize with God's word. Does it line up with God's word or does it not line up with God's word? Is it truth or is it a lie? Am I believing a lie? Do you realize that anxiety and fear is all about believing a lie? It's because someone has said they have this thing, they're anxious for whatever reason they're anxious for, they're believing something that's not true. And what is the Lord's, what is, how many times does the Bible say fear not? for I am with you. You see how it all works together. You, we have to come to the place where we control what's in our mind. You can't, do you, do you know who wants to control what's in your mind? The advertisers, the television set, the radio station. It, everybody is fighting to control your mind. Do you understand that? They want to sell you stuff. They want you to buy stuff. They want you to come get whatever it is they're selling. They want you to tell you how to raise, their ki how you, how to raise your kids. They want to tell you all the things that you need to know. Listen, it's all right here. This, this is where our mind needs to be, in the word of God. Our mind needs to be in prayer. Paul said, pray without ceasing. That's where our mind needs to be. We must be people who take the word of God and apply it to our life. 
We must be people who take the scriptures and the promises and we hold them, hold God accountable to them. Remind him of his promises in his word. Tell him of them. Well, he already knows them. I know he knows them, but he needs you to tell him back so that he knows that you know them. He wants you to know them. You don't need to remind him so he knows. You remind him so that you know. That's, that's how this, this how it works. Lord, unveil the emotions. Expose evil. Show us our evil way of thinking. We don't follow our emotions. We don't follow evil thoughts. We don't let our mind take us wherever it wants to go. We must take the truth and replace all of the lies in our head. We must believe in the power of God's word. <coughs> Excuse me. Pray for his wisdom. Pray for his understanding. We have to ask him for these things. And it's with his power, with these weapons. And I, I wish we could do Ephesians 5, but we can't this morning. We have the ability to cast down these strongholds. Will you use them in your life? Paul goes on to say, with these weapons, we are also ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. He's literally saying to the Corinthians there, we're all soldiers together in this battle. I'm ready to bring some discipline among those who are being disobedient. I'm going to give you time to repent. I'm going to give you time to get it straight. But if not, I'm coming. And I, I will take care of business when I get there. That's up to you. Verse 7, we're going to move quickly through the rest of the chapter, kind of take it in big chunks. Verse 7, Paul's going to defend his authority in the Corinthian church. He says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. For even if I, even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for the edification and not for your destruction... I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, and what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. <coughs> Apparently in their judging of the Apostle Paul, they had referenced his outward appearance. Reference what he looked like. Paul, according to church history, wasn't very much of a guy to look at. He wasn't very handsome, so to speak. He was relatively short. He had a bald head, crooked legs, a hooked nose, and his eyes didn't see very well. And he wasn't a whole, he didn't command authority. He didn't command respect when, he, when you looked at his outward appearance. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, if you're looking at me, aren't we all saved here? Aren't we both saved? Aren't we both following Christ? He res responds by saying, those who belong to Christ must recognize that we also belong to Christ. And he says, yes, I can boast about my authority because I'm the one that God used to bring the gospel to you. I, I am the one that God used. There's an authority that the person that shared Christ with you the first time has in your life over somebody else. There should be. They shared with you. They, they're the one that introduced you. That's what Paul's saying. I'm the one that's been teaching you. I'm the one that's been training you. I'm the one. I have a little more authority in your life to speak this way because of who I am and what I've done in your life. I've demonstrated my love for you. I lived with you guys for 18 months. I shared with you. I poured my heart into you. Listen to what I have to say. That's what Paul's talking about. And yes, I've been weighty and powerful in my letters. He says, mark my words. I'm going to be the same way when I get there, if I need to be. My hope is that you'll take care of it. Look there in verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves. And oh, by the way, he's being sarcastic here. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. 
Now, I know we get confused, so let me read it to you in a different translation. Because all of them, some, themselves is confusing to me. Listen to the way the New Living Translation puts verse 12. Oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are. But they are only comparing themselves with each other. Using themselves as the standard of measurement. How ignorant. That's the translation of what he just said. Many people are ready to commend themselves. Let me tell you what I've accomplished. Let me tell you how great I am. Let me tell you how smart I am. But when it comes to the comparison, they're only comparing themselves to themselves. Everybody can be smart in their own mind, or they find someone less than themselves. Oh, I'm better than them. Look, yeah, look at me. No, no, don't look over there. No, he's better than me. No, no, we're, we're looking over here today. I'm better than him or her. They're comparing themselves with people that they're better than. We can always find somebody less. One commentator put it this way. He said, stop measuring yourself by yourself. Stop comparing yourselves among yourselves. We should not make ourselves the measure of others, feeling that we are superior to them, if our outward appearance, or if by outward appearance, we are more successful. On the other hand, we should not make others our measure, feeling we are failures if by outward appearance, they are more successful. You see, who do we compare ourselves to? Where does that standard lie? It's, I think it lies between you and the Lord. What does the Lord say about you? What is the Lord calling you to do? And he's going to talk about that in just another, just another verse or two. It, it's, it's what does the Lord say about you that really matters? Look there in verse 13 as we move quickly to the end of the chapter. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves, as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Paul says simply this. He says, listen, we're not boasting in another man's work. It's not like someone else shared the gospel with you. I'm boasting in what God has done through me and through you, and he's done it together, you and I. We're not limited to what God has given us. We brought the gospel to you. We, we brought the gospel to you. We want you to take the gospel to other people. It'll increase all the people that we're affecting for the Lord. We're all doing this together. This is an area that I think some pastors and church planners and even missionaries need to understand. We don't boast in someone else's work. If the Lord is doing a work, let him work. You don't need to necessarily try to take people away. That's what was happening in Corinth. These false teachers had come in. And they're trying to pull the people away. People are, people are they're trying to drag the people away. I've told many people that come to visit our church because they listen on the radio station. And they, I've told many of them, stay where God has you. Stay where God puts you. If God's called you someplace, great, listen on the radio, but stay there. Don't come to our church unless the Lord is calling you to our church. I've probably sent more people away than I've invited in just because I don't want to be the person that brings people from other churches because we have a larger platform, because we have a radio station. But here's the thing. If the Lord's calling someone... If, there's God, if the Bible's not being taught, if, if God's not doing anything, then yes, absolutely. Come to where God's calling you to, you to be. But at the same time, there's got to be a balance where you go, wait a minute, I don't want to encroach on somebody else's work. 
Do you know that on the mission field, and, and, and I won't share where, but I was talking to a missionary recently where he has to keep his, his mission work secret because other missionaries will come in and they'll, they'll plant there and they'll write their newsletters back home and say what they're doing and they'll, they'll, they'll encroach on his work and take it from him. That's, that's sad. Let, let, let them work. And that's what Paul's saying here. We're only doing the work that God's called us to do. And finally, there in verse 17, as we close out the chapter, Paul tells them, this is, it all wraps up in this, because this is where you need to put your glory. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. By using this quotation from Jeremiah, Paul's rebuking the Corinthian Christians that are aligning. There, there was two sides, either you're for Paul or you're against Paul. And Paul says, wait a minute, you're glorying in what side you're on. You're glorying in who you're following. If you're going to glory, glory in the Lord. Let him get the credit. Don't be a follower of man. Be a follower of the Lord. The truth is, we can testify about ourselves all day long, but it doesn't really matter what we say, does it? Do you know who that really impresses? Us. What really matters is what does the Lord say about you? What would his testimony say about you if this morning Jesus was to walk through the door and say, I'm going to give testimony about my people in the church at Calvary Chapel here in Cumberland? Would he be able to say, oh, he's so faithful. He's been walking with me for years. We've accomplished so much together. Yeah, look where I've brought him from. Would he be able to say, oh, she's a brand new believer. We just met. She just, she, I've known her her whole life from before she was created, but she just gave her life to me and she's growing tremendously. She's not that mature yet, but boy, you should, let me tell you about the plans I have for her. Or would it be more of something along the lines of, he thinks he knows me. He acts like he knows me. He pretends to know me. I want to get to know him, but he's really not open. I'm trying to work in his heart. I'm trying to get him to cast down some of these strongholds. I'm giving him the power. and I'm trying to teach him the word, but he, he's just... He hears it on Sunday, but Monday it just, it slips away. What would he testify of you this morning if he could stand up and give testimony? Is there a stronghold in your life that needs to come down? Is there an argument, a lie running around your head that needs to be cast out and replaced with the truth of God's word? Are you taking every thought captive or is that something you need to start doing? Have you been battling in the flesh and you're worn out? Can I suggest this morning that Paul's telling us there's a better way? That there's a spiritual battle that's unfolding before us? And that we deploy the, the, the power of prayer, we deploy the word of God, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling with us, coming upon us to accomplish what he's called us to do. He's empowered us to do it. But if we don't ever recognize that, we just simply struggle day in and day out, never deploying, deploying these spiritual weapons that we have, you see, it's real simple. We sang in a song that we are victorious. As a Christian, you're victorious. No matter how you live the rest of your life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and he has your heart, you are going to be victorious. But from now until you see him face to face, that's where the difference lies. Am I going to live a life pleasing to him in the spirit? Or am I going to live a life of struggle and failure? Or I'm going to live a life trying to accomplish and always falling short and never, what's the word I'm looking for? Never, never, never really getting that abundant life in Christ. Always battling. You see, the trick there is to realize the spiritual battle and the fleshly battle. 
If you're having problems with your kids, with your parents, whatever it is, realize it's a spiritual battle. Fight it in the spirit. You're not going to gain victory using carnal principles, but you will gain victory and hope and peace when you deploy your spiritual weapons that you have available to you. Keep praying. Keep replacing the lies with the truth of God's word. Keep asking for the Holy Spirit to come upon you and them. Keep deploying these things and do not give up. That's the worst thing that a soldier could ever do is quit and run away. We will stand until we see him face to face. And we will fight with all that he's given us to fight with. And we will not believe the lie of the enemy that says we have to do this in the flesh. Because we have the Holy Spirit available to us. And we as a church, as a Christian, as a community need to say yes, we will do battle in that manner. Let's pray. Father, these are truths that the enemy doesn't want us to know. Many of us will walk out of here and forget them. But Lord, they're truths that are so necessary for us to navigate this life. I pray they would take root in our hearts. I pray that our hearts were good, fertile ground and those seeds would sprout. Lord, we all face difficulties. We all face battles. We all face struggles. We all have problems. But Lord, may this morning be the morning we recognize we are no longer fighting them in the flesh. We are turning them over to you. We're going to deploy our spiritual weapons. We're going to study the word of God until we find every verse that applies to our situation and we're going to memorize it. We're going to pray without ceasing. Every time that we begin to get anxious or fearful, we're going to unleash the power of prayer. But Lord, we need your help to do that. You've stirred us up. You've given us this message. Now teach us how to apply it. May it not just be now. May it be for the rest of the week, the rest of the month, and the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.